0: Good morning, my name is Pastor George. Um, I get the pleasure of walking us through Genesis 12, 1 through 9 this morning um, as we look at the call to Abram. Um, We can definitely, as you're considering this week and as you're praying, be praying for the mans, be praying for Brian. Um, He enjoys and takes great joy and energy from being with the body. And I know being separate at this time of the year is is definitely having an effect on him. So just pray for him, um, and we will look forward to um, next Sunday um, getting to worship. Well, let's read Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy five years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring I will give this land." So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. We're going to approach the text today um, in three different ways. And you can see them, of course, um, on your bulletin. Uh, the first is going to be to just observe the text itself um, what does it say? What does it emphasize? What's going on? What does it tell us about God? And we're going to call this reading basically reading exegetically. We're going to read out of the text. Um, second, we're going to read the text in light of Jesus. The passage begs to be read with Christ in mind or Christologically. It points to Christ. And then finally, we're going to read the text in light of the Spirit, um, in light of the church, in light of our call to be watching and waiting uh, to be holy as he is holy. So those are the three waves we're going to approach the text, and we're just going to jump right in. So we start with the text, with the call to Abram, or in the weeds or among the trees, whichever metaphor you most like, and we're just going to ask, what do we see? So first, verses 1 through 3, we see sort of the mission given to Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So observing the text, we find two commands. The first is go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, it's kind of important, and it's not clear in the text necessarily, but Abram doesn't know where he's going. He's told to go to a country he'll be pointed out later, but that's the command, to go. And this first command is is associated with two promises. The first is that he will be made into a great nation, and the second, that he will bless you and make your name great. So the second command, It's easy to overlook, but it flows out of the first command and its promises, and it's easy to miss in the passage as it looks more like a ground or a reason, a purpose for the promises, but it's a command. In the the Hebrew, it's 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 an imperative. It's a command. The ESV reads, so that you will be a blessing. We might rather read it as, and so you will be, you're going to be a blessing, or even just... So therefore, be a blessing. And so we ask, how is he going to be a blessing? And God gives three more promises to answer that question. He says, I will bless those who bless you. He who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How would you like to wake up tomorrow morning and have God tell you that He is going to advance his kingdom through you in particular, that he's going to enhance your reputation beyond compare, that he's going to bless you through others and curse those who oppose you. How would you like confirmation that the work you're going to engage in is going to be to the good of everyone? God's promises to Abram are nothing more than astounding. They're flabbergasting. They're just ridiculous. And all he commands is to go and be a blessing. Well, that is, go to the land I will lead you to. You'll just have to trust me that this is the right move, Abram. Leave behind everything you're used to your country, your cultural expectations, your family and traditions the settled and organized life you've been living. Oof. (laughs) And well, some are going to bless you. That's awesome. You're gonna make enemies going where you're going. Don't expect fanfare and celebration when you arrive, but it will all work out in the end. Believe it. God promises great things to Abram, but he doesn't promise an easy path. That's what we see in the passage. Still, observing the text, what do we see of God's character here? First, we should see that he's personal. He's not a hidden, aloof God. Those who say that God can't relate to his creation because he's just too holy, Moses and Abraham sort of think otherwise. God is personal. He's present. He's a God who understands community, and we can even say that he creates community and has created us for community. From Abram will come a great nation, and God understands the value in a good name. God calls us to ascribe worth to his name. And so in the same way, he says, I'm going to give you a good name. He understands praise rightly placed thanks truly given. Also, God, the the best giver, the best gift giver, knows what a blessing looks like. The author of life knows what the blessed life is about. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on both too. He knows how to make life thrive. And that's what it truly means to be blessed. Not just, well, everything's going well for you, but blessed, thriving, living to the fullest. And we find a God who has a sovereign plan. He can choose who he wants to choose. He can state unequivocally, even when everything suggests otherwise, what will happen, what will come to pass. So let's talk about that for a moment, when everything suggests otherwise. First, Let's go back to the passage, starting at verse 4, and we read, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So when everything suggests otherwise, Abram is 75 years old. It's hardly the time to start family planning. Just a few verses earlier, we're told, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. God has picked the least likely couple to send off to produce a great and mighty nation. But the passage is clear. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Lest it be missed, can we remember that just recently Abram is out of Ur and Haran? Now, neither Ur nor Haran are known for their monotheistic worship of Yahweh. They're not known for faithfulness. This isn't the setting we would think out of which would come an obedient and faithful God-fearer. Right? So, whatever greatness we imagine in Abram, he is God's chosen man. He is. He's God's chosen man. He wasn't selected because of his winning smile. He isn't perfect before or after this point in Genesis. He's a man. So while we're likely predisposed to think of the man Abraham, whose faith was counted to him as righteousness, we need to pause. He isn't Jesus. He's Abram, a man of his time, a man who doubts, a man who laughs at God, a man who struggles with the truth at times a man who attempts to secure the promise in his own strength by thoroughly human means. So in the end, he's chosen because of God's own good pleasure. Not because he's this wonderful example, but because of God's own good pleasure. He's called out of Ur and sent on a mission to who knows where, and in God's good pleasure, he does trust and obey So what I'm saying is that the promises weren't just a show of God's greatness. They're not just God being like, "Look at me, what I can do." The promises are meant to respond directly to Abram's situation. He's got no prospects, no children to lean on. If a great nation is to come from him, God is going to have to make it happen. And Abram isn't naive. He isn't oblivious to the facts. But let's get back to the passage. Back midway through verse 5, we read, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Moses spares no time on Abram and Sarai's journey. They set out, and then the next breath, they've arrived in Canaan. And the only comment is, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land kind of like the story of Jesus. There was no room in the inn. I mean, Canaan? Yeah, no room in the inn. It's not gonna work very well then. Uh, (laughs) But that takes us to the the, the final point here as we look at the text, and that is that the, the reader knows the ultimate destination, but Abram doesn't yet. So when it says, at that time the Canaanites were in the land, Abram is just walking through, and he sees, well, this place is populated guess I'm keeping on moving. This is just day 4,137. Don't quote me on that. That's not biblical. (laughs) On their trip to who knows where, God is still in the lead. And here at Shechem, he stops them. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So finally, God reveals the land he is giving to Abram, or at least his children. Baron Sarai, unlikely Abram, the land is for your children. Abram, Abram sets up an altar and worships. He gives thanks. And we're probably, if we're reading this in a Bible plan, it's going to read right past it. And that's really unfortunate. Um, <laughs> he moves on from Shechem, setting up camp briefly at a spot near Bethel. There he builds another altar and calls on the name of the Lord. And then Abram keeps on moving, heading south. And we, we just probably read right past, missing the praise and thanks that Abram is giving in spite of, God, what are you doing? Where are you leading? We could probably delve into the significance of Shechem or Bethel or Ai, but I think we have a lay of the land. We've tackled the forest, and so we're going to move from weeds now to wonders. Genesis 12, 1 through 9 marks a dramatic shift in the book of Genesis. Up to this point, God is related to humanity directly and universally, but now he shifts to a unique relationship with a particular family and eventually a particular nation. God is preparing a place and a people for himself. Through Abram will come Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, the Davidic kings, and ultimately Jesus. God the Son incarnate, and through his particular unmerited love and grace given to Abram, universal blessings still flow. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in Galatians 3. So I wanted to have you take a moment. Go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bibles, um, to Galatians 3, and you can keep it bookmarked because we're going to head there when we deal with walks as well. Um, But we're going to hit some highlights. We're not going to read through it all, but I'll give you a moment. So first, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's pretty astounding that Paul would say, they preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God's promises basically were God proclaiming the gospel in advance, letting Abraham know that his his journey, his wandering, his being in exile in his own promised land was worth it because Christ was going to come through him. Or we have Galatians 3, 13 through 14, just a little bit further. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So easy to think of the nation of Israel and forget that Abraham came much before Israel. the formation of the nation, before the formation of the kingdom, Abraham is promised to be a great nation, to be a blessing to all nations. That's what Paul gets right here. And then next, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ who is Christ, who is Jesus, the Son of God, the divine Son, one person of the Trinity in two natures, one fully divine, one fully human. He's the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom all the promised blessings flow. And finally, Galatians three twenty six through 29, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul can't be any more clear. God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, to Abram. All that he went through was worth it because we're the heirs. We're his offspring as long as we're united to Christ. The promise to Abraham was no small affair. In Genesis 12, before the covenant, before the test of his faith, before any of it, God had promised to redeem humanity through Abram's offspring. And so shame on us if we approach the text, and I didn't do it, I didn't have this written in because of that, but to yawn. (laughs) how, how can we do it? How, shame on us if we read of the promise and kind of just glance over it in our reading plan. How else are we going to come to grips with Abram's steady hand as he enters Canaan and find things, finds things not as expected? He walks the land as a stranger, living on God's promise alone, knowing that God is faithful to accomplish his word. Abram thought Jesus worthy of the hardship worthy of the waiting, worthy of the wandering. Like Abram, Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations, an example of the wisdom of God, his justice, his righteousness, his kindness and his mercy to the praise of his glory. But the nation failed spectacularly. First the kingdom of Israel, then the kingdom of Judah were sent into exile for their rampant sin and idolatry. Generations later, some return to the land, but the glory's gone. The kingdom's broken. The line of Davidic kings, gone. Isaiah, Jeremiah, ask, how, Lord, will you keep your promises to David? These sons of Abram may be in the land, but it is if the exile is still in force. They long for the Messiah, the Christ, who will restore their hope who will cleanse with water and pour out the Spirit. Oh, come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appears. But as we look further back, it's not just the promises to David and Israel that are in question. As Rome dominates the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the nation wonders have the promises to Abraham failed? Are God's promises of no effect? And this is what we read in, in Luke 1 as, as Mary bursts forth in song. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You hear echoes of Abraham's promise. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever." God's not forgotten his promises. God, the only hope of salvation, he's not forgotten. He was working from the beginning to restore what was lost, what was corrupted through Adam's sin. 1 Timothy tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He's heard our cries. He's heard our desperation and now enters the story as baby boy to grow in obedience, to face temptation, to teach his disciples, to seek and save the lost, to reveal the glory of the Father, to die in our place, to rise victorious over death and sin. What must I do to be saved? Asked the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and and the response is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The message of Genesis 12 is is just as simple. God has not forgotten his plan to reconcile us to himself. God is not impotent in the face of human sin and corruption. And so the invitation goes to you this morning. Friend, will you believe today and be saved? Will you respond to the Savior like Abram, trusting the lover of your soul? You can rest on the promise of Jesus Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, we started down the weeds, we've worked through the wonders to be found in Christ, and now it's time to consider our walks. Paul writes in Romans 15, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have So we ought to ask ourselves, what, what is it that this passage teaches and demonstrates and calls and commands? How do, what, what do we respond? How do we respond? How does it give us hope? What are the indicatives? What are the imperatives, the commands? What do we see, what do we do with this passage concerning Abram and his offspring, Jesus? And the writer of Hebrews encourages us to see Abram as an example of faith. So it not only points to Christ as the promised seed but it calls us to see Abram as an example of faith. Maybe trust is a better word today. Often we think of faith as just I'm going to believe completely ruling out anything that uh, I've experienced and know but it's not biblical faith. But trust really works the way that we think of it is because we know a person we put all our eggs in that basket. That's what Abram points to us po- points us out uh, to do uh, between the first two songs this morning, we read Hebrews eleven eight through sixteen, and verses eight through nine tell us that by faith Abraham, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Let me think back to today's passage, specifically verses six and seven. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's the decisive moment. What will Abram do, uh, seeing that the land of promise is a plan for the future? He's given up country, kindred, home, to wander here as a stranger, an exile. Is this the straw that will break the camel's back? Is this the extent of Abram's trust and obedience? And the clear answer from Scripture is no, of course not. Reaching Canaan and considering God's promises, Abram recognizes that God has something bigger in mind than a physical locale and children he can bounce on his knee. Not that it's less than that, but he won't find rest here because there is something eternal, an eternal city that he's a citizen of. He's content to wander at God's discretion because he believes that God has something better in mind. So Hebrews 11 says, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His hope and trust were transformed by a knowledge of Christ. So today, brothers and sisters, where does your hope lie? We sit in the Christmas season, where is it? Is your hope in a good grade? Has it been in passing a class? Graduating on time? A good marriage? Children to be proud of? A good reputation at work? Cash in the bank? They're all good things, and all things that can be twisted in our sin to keep us settled and comfortable, unwilling to move, unwilling to respond when God calls. Unwilling to give up what we cling to when God asks us to hold it loosely for his glory? Are you looking for an eternal city? Are you looking for the rest only found in Christ or are you just looking for a place to lie down now? Does the coming judgment of Christ on unbelievers spur you to loving gospel proclamation? Does the spirit dwell within you moment by moment conforming you to the image of Christ? giving you security like nothing else can. With the coming of Abraham's offspring, we have a hope that Abram may not have anticipated. In the Old Testament, the experience of the Spirit was uneven. He empowered leaders for a time, prophets, priests, kings. But as Scripture unfolded, the promise deepened. Jeremiah and Ezekiel envision a day when God will pour out His Spirit and cause it to dwell within his people. They'll all know the Lord, and Paul connects the gift of the Spirit to the promise to Abram. So let's take a look back at Galatians. We read in Galatians 3, 3-7, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, hearing with obedience? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians three thirteen through 14 continues, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. But he then says, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And finally, Galatians 4 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons and daughters. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is not just a force or a power tacked on to the idea of salvation. In God's plan, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was always part of the promise to Abram. And we as his people, the heirs of the promise, we have the spirit within us. It's exactly what Jesus promised. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water by which he signified the spirit. The message of Abram in this passage is that no earthly rest or security can compare with Christ. No earthly city compares to the coming of the king, so we keep moving step by step until we're in his presence, face to face. Faith is a future-oriented thing, not a past-looking thing. It is secured by knowledge of God's faithfulness in the past, but it looks with expectation to the future. Here, we're strangers. We're exiles. Peter reminds us Called to live holy lives that proclaim the coming of the Lord Jesus. But you aren't called to live a life of a hermit. You're not a holy ascetic. You're called as part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You have the Spirit within you, and the Spirit binds you to the church, to all those saints gathered to glorify God for his works of creation and redemption. So, let us live lives of thanksgiving and worship. God's not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared for us a city. Let's pray. Father, would you take the words of Genesis 12 and encourage us in this Christmas season God, will we remember the length you went to reconcile us, our sin, Adam's sin, our corruption, our, all the ways that the image of God that you have given us has been defaced, God. You prepared from the very beginning to heal it, to redeem us, to reconcile us, to make us United with Christ again. You've prepared a people for yourself in overflowing, gracious love. So God, we thank you this morning. And we ask you to use that gospel proclamation. God, to strengthen us, to make us a voice of love, of God's, saving grace to our families, to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. God, would, would we not take it as something that we can get to next week, next month, in a year? God, will we take it and live it out today and live it out tomorrow? God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your abundant mercy on us. We wait for you Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.